This is Hormones, the inside story, the podcast from the Society for Endocrinology, where we look at the tiny things inside us, pulling the strings. This time, we're taking a look at probably the biggest natural shift in human hormones outside of puberty, and that's the menopause. Despite the fact that this change will occur in up to half of the population, menopause is still a taboo and desperately under-researched subject. And what about the other half of the population? Is there really a menopause caused by plummeting sex hormones, or is it a buzzword invented to prop up a billion-dollar testosterone industry? I'm Georgia Mills, and in this episode we are asking, what is going on with our sex hormones as we age, and why does it matter? Now, a quick note before we get going, I want to recognise that people's gender identity doesn't always match up with their birth sex, and there's a huge range of genetic and hormonal conditions that affect reproductive health, often with very little research behind them. So no experience discussed on this podcast is going to be universal. Now let's start with our basic definition of the menopause. The menopause literally means periods stopping. So meno is periods and pause means stop. This is Dr. Anise Mukherjee, a consultant endocrinologist based in Manchester. The menopause is sort of defined by when a woman's eggs run out. So every baby girl is born with a finite number of eggs. And when she reaches puberty, she starts to release eggs on a monthly basis. And that's what causes the monthly period cycle. And that's what results in the eggs being released, which produces a woman's fertility. An adult woman then releases an egg every month or almost every month, provided she's healthy, through to when her eggs run out. And for every woman that's slightly different, in the UK, the average age of the eggs running out in menopause is 51 years. And after the menopause, a woman is no longer fertile and her periods stop. While menopause by a certain age is an inevitability, some people go through it much earlier due to genetics, underlying health conditions, or the result of medical interventions like cancer treatment. And, of course, technically, if you've never had periods for any reason, you can't exactly have them stop. But for those who do, figuring out when exactly this is going to happen can be tricky. It's not you have regular periods right the way through to 51, then the periods stop and there's no more periods. Quite often your periods stop, then they restart, then they're more erratic and you might have two or three a year or five a year for a couple of years before they actually stop. So actually any single woman doesn't really know she's gone through the menopause until she's not had a period for 12 consecutive months. So it's almost a retrospective diagnosis, a hindsight diagnosis. So although it sounds simple, it's your last period, no one really knows when that last period is going to be until after the event. Right. And what are the hormonal changes that happen over this period? So let's go to before the menopause. We've got the premenopausal hormones that cycle every month. And there's a number of different hormones, brain hormones and ovarian hormones that move up and down through the month to optimise the egg release at the mid-cycle for the fertility aspect. And so we produce oestrogen, testosterone, progesterone are the, the three main hormones that move around through that menstrual cycle. So after the age of 45, many women will start to experience something we describe as perimenopause, where that nice harmonious hormone cycle starts to sort of misfire a little bit and doesn't work quite as smoothly. 
And that's again because the, the number of eggs are starting to wane, they're going down. And if there's not as many eggs, sometimes, some months, a woman might not even release an egg and her periods can start to become less regular. And with that can come a number of symptoms, which we, we sort of describe as perimenopause, but the symptoms in perimenopause and menopause can be very similar. This change brings with it a litany of symptoms that can vary from person to person as they first go through the perimenopause and then into menopause. Well, since I started doing endocrinology, there was, yeah, there was a list of a handful of symptoms that everybody associated with menopause. So things like night sweats and hot flushes, mood swings, irritability, fatigue and joint aches. But actually there are almost an infinite number of symptoms that are now described to be associated with menopause now. Everything from feeling as if You've got insects crawling over your body, which is something described as formication, which is a relatively rare symptom of of menopause, you know, through to sleep disturbance, which is very common, low mood. Brain fog is a term that a lot of people relate to, which is sort of in in medical terms, we call it cognitive dysfunction, where your your memory and your focus just sort of go right out of sync um, and you can become more forgetful. And that can be quite frightening for many women, actually. One in four women, so about 25% of women, will experience severe menopausal symptoms. Three in four will not. I would say I don't want people to think, gosh, this is never going to go away, because for the vast majority it does. And we don't know why some women will experience those symptoms more severely. But why does a drop in oestrogen result in so many different symptoms? Anise tries to look at it like a synchronised swimming team. There you have your hormones swimming together in harmony in the pool, which represents our brain and body. They're in balance, they have their whole routine rehearsed, and then perimenopause happens. Some of the swimmers then stop fulfilling their roles properly. Oestrogen, progesterone and testosterone decide they can't be bothered anymore. And suddenly all the other hormones are trying to compensate for the missing swimmers. It's just like a big splashing mess. This splashy mess confuses the brain and the body and causes the vast variety of symptoms. And frustratingly, because it's so variable, it can be really hard to figure out exactly what's happening to cause each specific symptom and develop effective interventions. Although Anise told me there had been one really exciting breakthrough recently. Well, the hot flushes is an interesting one because some very clever researchers were based in the UK um, at Imperial College London. They are neuroendocrine researchers, neuroscience researchers have found a hormone which seems to trigger the mechanism for hot sweats and flushes. And this amazing group actually developed a, a tablet treatment to treat that hormone problem that triggers hot sweats and flushes and it's incredibly exciting stuff because these studies are quite advanced now and they've been tested in humans giving this tablet treatment reduces hot sweats and flushes and it also improves sleep quality and mood so it's an amazing discovery that's very much a watch this space because when we get that medication available it's going to be a game changer for many women because it will take those symptoms away and it is directly targeting the mechanism in a very safe way. Wow, so big deal then. Yeah, I mean, I think there's very few breakthroughs in medicine that really make a difference. And and in endocrinology, you know, there, there are breakthroughs all the time, but, you know, real game changes like that, I think it's rare. So I think I'm very, very excited about when the next paper's coming out. 
and for most people with severe symptoms, hormone replacement therapy is an option. This kind of helps you gradually drop your levels more calmly, so our synchronised swimmers have more time to adjust to their new routine. HRT has a somewhat chequered history. Initially, only oestrogen was given to people, but if you have a uterus, oestrogen on its own can cause cancer in the womb, so you have to give it with progesterone. But then, in the 1990s, a major study came out finding that there were some risks associated with long-term HRT. The prescribing of HRT dropped by about 50% virtually overnight, and that was because they'd found an increased risk of breast cancer with HRT and an increased risk of sort of cardiovascular and blood vessel type problems. Women became very fearful. The media said, you know, HRT is very dangerous and very few women were given HRT. But then some follow-up studies were able to pick apart what was really happening. So they looked in more detail and they found that the women who were coming to harm were those women who were older and left on treatment without really much monitoring for decades. And younger women really didn't seem to come to much harm at all. They, they, they seemed to have all the benefits without the risks because HRT we know is also really good for bones and in younger women it's good for heart protection. So it's, it's about individualising care. We still have loads to learn about menopause, especially for people with severe symptoms and those who have to go through it at a much younger age. But what about the males? A word menopause has been popping up in health columns and men's magazines. So what is it? And is it really a thing? So my name's uh, Chana Jayasena, so I work at Inborough College London as a reproductive endocrinologist with a special interest in fertility and sex hormones. So in men, rather than a sudden drop in activity of the reproductive system, the testes produce about 1% less testosterone year on year from about the age of 40. So there's a gradual decline. And also, unlike women, there is far from an inevitability that men will ever require testosterone. In fact, most never do. So only a minority of men will have a reduction in testosterone with age that ever requires medical treatment. This decline in testosterone is a gradual one, less of a hormonal cliff you stumble off, but a gentle slope. It's a natural part of ageing, but a few things can accelerate it. So first of all, we think that um, the hypothalamus in the brain which regulates the testes and ovaries can naturally reduce activity with age. Secondly, the testes do as well, so bits of the body wear down. But... It's also important to realise that older men are more likely to be on medications and have medical problems, things such as obesity or heart problems or high blood pressure, which also each add up to reduce testosterone. So in general, the less healthy you are, the lower testosterone you have. And we know that in general, someone aged 80 will have a lower level of health on average than someone who's aged 20. So the symptoms of having a low testosterone can be very profound and impact quality of life. The most obvious symptoms are sexual, so low libido, inability to have erections when you normally would, are the hallmarks of testosterone deficiency, but it can also affect mood, so increased depression risk, but also impair broad quality of life and also impair cognition, so your ability to concentrate and think properly. 
they sound like they, they're not a million miles away from the symptoms described for menopause, especially the sort of mm. brain fog and tiredness angle. You're right. You're, you're, when you put it like that, you almost persuade me. Yes, there are many, many similarities. And in fact, with extreme testosterone deficiency, you can also get flushes just as you would in menopause. Right. So testosterone can go down and for some people it can be more severe. So if oestrogen and progesterone can help with some of the symptoms of menopause, could a testosterone supplement help with this so-called menopause? I think there are some who really think that you should try to supplement everyone with low testosterone and because it's like the elixir of life, you will make these men younger, rejuvenate them. And then there are others who say, well, studies show that if you give testosterone to such men, if they don't start off with symptoms such as erectile dysfunction or libido, they're just well. Well, what are you really doing for them? And is it safe? Because if you give anything that raises testosterone or oestrogen, then there are small but significant risks of blood clots and changes to cholesterol levels, which are minute. But if you start giving them to people who don't need it, those minute changes become important. Right. And is there an element here of, um, you said this elixir of life, of of people promising the Mm. world and, you know, Mm. forever young, if you just take this, take this pill and age just will stop happening? Yeah, I think it is. and, And it's unfortunate because I think there are lots of people out there who want to believe this. And if you promise them these, then there will be people who come forward and pay for it. I think this is more a trend in North America. But of course, we have the Internet and these trends will, you know, will will spread worldwide. So there's no doubt that if if a man took testosterone, you would increase your musculature as well. Something I haven't really talked about. I've focused on reproductive symptoms. But that, in a way, is rejuvenating, isn't it? Because you could have the body of, of someone much younger. But that, to me, sounds dangerously close to anabolic steroid use, which is more about trying to give yourself an artificially enhanced body, which is, you know, illegal. So there's a very grey moral area here of what is acceptable and right and what is legitimate lifestyle prescribing for people who just want to to remain healthy. You know, the the whole concept of testosterone and testosterone deficiency plugs into the male, you know, sense of self-identity and masculinity. I personally don't think that we should be giving it merely for cosmetic reasons. However, I think it's important to have this public debate about what the role of hormones in, in society is. Promises of eternal youth and masculinity in a pill. What could possibly go wrong? There have been stories in America, but I'm sure that some of this would apply all over the world. There was um, an audit looking at testosterone prescriptions um, in the not-too-distant past in America, and they found that in many cases, levels of testosterone weren't even measured. So men who were coming in with very vague symptoms of tiredness which could be due to anything, were simply given testosterone, which should only be done if they have a low level of testosterone. So that's clearly inappropriate and dangerous and can risk very serious cardiovascular effects. And I I am concerned about this growth in what we call 
lifestyle clinics. And this has been propagated in the States of where you give growth hormone, thyroid hormone, testosterone in a very slapdash way. And all of these hormones stimulate people, stimulate the body, stimulate the metabolism in a way of trying to keep people young. Who knows what that's doing to your health? I guess also, especially in America, it's not cheap to get things there. Yeah, this is a multi-billion dollar business and we need to support those who need it. And I think the tragedy is that stories like that make clinicians who are sensible cautious and prevent them from prescribing testosterone to the people who need it. And what we need is a middle ground where people who need it get it and those who don't, don't. Given this, should we be using the word menopause in the first place? My personal view is that it's unhelpful to call things menopause simply because it gives the potential for people to misunderstand that it's inevitable, just like it is inevitable in women. However, as we've discussed, there are elements that are similar. So if it does help men to conceptualise, to understand what symptoms they might go through and to help what's happening to their body, then I think there is merit in it. With both menopause and the menopause, sorry, Chana, I won't use that word again, there is a decline in sex hormones. The resulting physical and mental changes are also wrapped up in our identities and the way we see ourselves in society, which can leave people vulnerable to discrimination and susceptible to miracle cures. As Andrea Ford, an anthropologist at the University of Edinburgh, explains, the stories we tell ourselves about our hormones can have a real impact on our actual health and the way society treats us as we age, especially according to our gender. Quite up until the 18th century, the sexes were not seen as opposites or even different. They were seen as, well, a female was an inferior version of the male, so they were actually the same thing with interchangeable parts. In the 18th century, they started being seen as opposites, with women's physiology making them passive and weak, men's physiology making them active and strong. And not coincidentally, this was happening when there were a lot of political debates about women's rights and abilities. So you have the French and American revolutions happening at this time, the idea of democracy and who gets to participate in voting, and the way that bodies were conceptualized was also really changing and very much influenced by and influencing the political accounts of the time. And then in the early 20th century, the sort of essence of womanhood changed from being an organ, the uterus or the womb, to being chemicals, hormones. So, so I guess hormones became seen as really foundational to gender very recently, mm. just about a century ago. Mm, that's really interesting. And I guess like just the word hormonal, that's very loaded, isn't it, in terms of gender? Definitely. And so, of course, there are many hormones that are not gendered, that, that are not gendered culturally and that function very similarly in male and female and non-binary bodies. But something like saying you're hormonal or she's hormonal, that is very loaded, as you say. Despite affecting so many people throughout history, menopause hasn't exactly popped up much in the history books. So historically, menopause is more conspicuous by its absence than anything else in terms of both medical research and social science research. But recent anthropological research is starting to shed some light. A really cool anthropological study about menopause compares 
aging in Japan with aging in North America and how menopause shows up really differently in both places. This is a, a study done by Margaret Locke and it really shows how in North America the idea that menopause is a pathology and in fact a pathology that affects the entirety of females is not present in Japan. So of course women in Japan stop menstruating at a certain point but it's not understood as pathological as something that needs to be fixed as something that's primarily about hormone shifts it's not talked about in terms of deficiency so it doesn't necessarily make sense to offer hormone replacement therapy which is becoming more and more common in the US and so the same physiological process can be given really different meanings in different cultural situations that's really interesting and that study about how menopause is viewed does that come across in terms of the symptoms being different as well it does. So women um, in the study reported far fewer hot flashes and like forgetfulness. So the, the actual symptoms were different, um, which you could say that this has to do with other potential dietary factors, things like that. That's possible. That could be studied as well to sort of figure out the complexity that goes into what symptoms people experience. What's really interesting about that study is that people thought of those struggles and changes around this time of life more in terms of their responsibilities to other people and the sort of normal changes that come with having a different role in the community. Period stopping was just like a side effect kind of or a, a, a footnote about this broader change of life, whereas in the West period stopping and hormonal changes is front and center. And then all of the other things are seen to sort of stem from it. In Japan, in the study, it's almost inverted. I asked Andrea if she thought anthropology had any answers for how we should treat hormonal decline across the population. What is starting to happen is people being able to articulate for themselves what the problem is. A big issue with hormonal problems, especially gendered ones related to, to women or, or people who aren't men, has been that there are lots of social and cultural ideas about what's wrong with this person. For example, endometriosis is a chronic pain condition related to menstruation that has been for decades called the career woman's disease. So if you're a woman and you're doing something like a demanding career, you're going to get sick because your body's not capable of that. And this idea that it's a career woman's disease meant that it was only studied in wealthy white women. It was only found in wealthy white women. It certainly happens in other types of people, um, but it wasn't studied because it didn't fit in with the idea of who should have this and why it might be happening to people. People who have endometriosis today have a really hard time getting taken seriously. And so there's been like really important studies done recently about how difficult it is for women to get taken seriously in medical spaces. And I think in terms of hormones specifically, taking people at their word is the right direction to move in. So when we age, our sex hormones are going to inevitably decline. In theory, this shouldn't affect our identity or value as people. But that can be hard to believe when you're faced with a barrage of symptoms, adverts for hormone supplements, and the threat of medical or workplace discrimination. Alas, there's no pill that can keep us young forever. Yet, anyway. But in the meantime, it's important that all of us, especially workplaces, do more to build a society that respects and supports everyone, whatever their age and whatever their hormones are putting them through. 
Thanks so much to Dr. Chana Jayasena, Dr. Anise Mukherjee and Dr. Andrea Ford. Next time, we'll be looking at the interplay between our hormones and our fertility. Is there a global hormonal crisis on the horizon? It's spermageddon. If we continue our trajectory in declining sperm counts, then we'll end up with sperm counts of zero uh, by somewhere in the region. I think it was around about 2045. You and Your Hormones is a podcast from the Society for Endocrinology. Explore more about the world of hormones at yourhormones.info. You can follow the Society on Twitter. That's at SOC underscore E-N-D-O. And find them online at endocrinology.org. The show was produced by me, Georgia Mills. Kat Arney is the executive producer and it was made by First Create the Media. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>